The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. We're um, continuing on in our series that we've been doing for a few months now that's examining the life of David. And it's entitled, uh, the series is entitled After God's Heart. And so we're now in 2 Samuel chapter 6. This will mark the last message in the David series for now. We're not done with it, but uh, starting into the first weekend of December, we're going to be spending about four weeks in our Advent series, uh, which is, we've entitled The Greatest Gift. So we'll be sort of looking at that in preparation for the coming Christmas holiday. And then when we get into January, uh, we'll get back to the David series and continue on with it for a couple of more months when we'll try to wrap it up by then, okay? And so the title of today's message is God in a Box, and it comes from 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6. And so why don't we pray together, and then we will take a look at this chapter together. Lord, um, you know that we come to what we would call a difficult passage. It's not difficult for you. But it's difficult for us because in these um, verses we find revealed an aspect of your character that we struggle with, an aspect of you that we don't really understand very well and not only not understand but struggle with. And so we grant, ask that you would grant to us your mercies to um, look with courage at what we find in these words and to know that this is who you really are and to understand what you desire of us in light of that truth. And so we submit ourselves to that truth and invite you in to do your work in our heart. So we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I'm just going to not do a review or anything, but we're just going to jump right in into what we're looking at because we're going to actually have to look back at some portions of 1 Samuel in order to understand what's happening here. Um, in order to understand the events of Second Samuel chapter 6, you do need to go back to some things that happened in First Samuel chapters 4 to 7. Um, even before David shows up on the scene, even before Saul shows up on the scene, um, these were dark days in Israel when idolatry and sin were rampant and the Israelites were really far from God. Um, really a true breakdown in their relationship with God. And so that's setting the stage for what happens in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. Uh, The Israelites are encamped in this town called Ebenezer. And the Philistines are in a nearby town called Aphek. Now, if you remember, Aphek was also the town where David had gathered with the Philistines and was kind of trapped in a situation where he was about to be forced to go into battle on the Philistine side to fight against God's own people until uh, he was rescued from that dilemma because the Philistine generals didn't trust David. And they said, he is not going to go to war with us because in the, in the heat of battle, who knows what this guy is capable of. He may turn on us and try to kill us uh, to get into good graces with Saul again. And so they basically sent David home to Ziklag. Uh, and so David was spared this 
horrible situation where he may have to actually massacre his own people. That was the town of Aphek, where the Philistines are now gathered with their armies to fight the Israelites. And so day one of the battle ensues, and the Israelites are badly beaten. Um, it's a rout. About 4,000 Israelite soldiers are slaughtered that day. And the Israelites don't understand what's going on. Why are they losing? And so the elders of Israel convene, and they, they, they talk it through to try to figure out what they need to do before the battle goes any further. And so in verses 3 to 4 of 1 Samuel 4, it says this, And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And so the Israelites realized that somehow, for whatever reason, God doesn't seem to be helping them in this battle. And so their solution is basically to get this Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh where it was residing and bring it to the battlefield and then they're convinced if we have the ark with us, then the victory will be ours. Uh, and so to understand this rationale, the logic of what's happening here, you have to know what this ark of the covenant was. And many of you may only know about the ark of the covenant from Indiana Jones. I don't know if you remember that, that movie some years back. Uh, it's not quite accurate as to what that ark really represented. According to the Bible, God commanded the Israelites to build what he called an ark. This was in the days of Moses. It was basically a wooden box that measured roughly about four feet long by about two feet wide by about two feet deep. Okay? And that box was plated with gold. And then on the top, the lid was solid gold. And on that lid were two angels, cherubim, that were facing one another on opposite ends of the lid with their wings stretched out, touching one another with their wings. And that was known as the mercy seat because that's where God's glory would dwell in that place of those angels to represent his presence with his people. And then inside that ark were placed three objects. One of them were the original stone tablets on which God had inscribed the Ten Commandments, given it to, Mo to, to Moses for the people. Another object in there was Aaron's staff. Aaron was Moses' brother. And it was the staff that budded as a miracle of God. And then the third was a jar of manna, which was the miraculous bread that appeared every morning in the desert during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. So those three objects were placed inside this wooden box called the Ark of the Covenant. And they were physical reminders of Israel's history to tell them always, this is the God that you follow. This is the God that you worship. The God who looks after you and cares for you and guides you and teaches you his commandments. So this Ark was the center of Israelite worship. 
And it symbolized God's presence with his people. It was so much so that whenever the ark was picked up by the Levites, which was by God's command, and went to any new location, in Numbers chapter 10, verse 35 to 36, this is what happened. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, Lord, may your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. Whenever it came to rest, he said, Return, Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. Okay? So this is what Moses would say every time the ark traveled to a new location. It was a very clear message that this symbolized the presence of God with his people. Wherever the ark went was God's presence. And so it's understandable why these Israelites who were demoralized after the first day of battle would want to bring this ark to the battlefield to see if it might change their fortunes. And so in verses 5 to 9 of 1 Samuel 4, this is how the story continues. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Hollywood could not have set up a more dramatic, Braveheart-like moment, right? All that's left to do is for the Israelites to march into battle and whoop the Philistines, right? I mean, the entire stage is set for that to be the narrative. But surprisingly, that's not what actually happened that day. In verses 10 to 11, the story continues, and it says, So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. It was the worst possible outcome imaginable to the Israelites. The unimaginable happened. The Israelites were slaughtered and the priests who had brought the ark from Shiloh were slaughtered. And the ark itself was taken as part of the spoils of war by the Philistines. So tragic was the news that when it finally reached Eli, the high priest, and he finds out that his sons were dead and the ark was taken captive, he's sitting there leaning on a chair. In his, he's like 89 years old here. And it, the story says that he actually fell backward and he broke his neck and he ended up dying in that moment. It also happened that right at that moment, Phineas, one of the priests who were killed in that battle, 
His wife back home was in labor with a child. And she received the news of the death of her husband and the death of her father-in-law at the same time while she was given labor. And so after she bore this son, she named the son Ichabod, which literally translated means no glory. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Now, I want to pose to you a question. What went wrong that day? Why did it end in such disaster for God's people? Well, I want to argue this. When the Israelites brought the ark into the battlefield that day, what they demonstrated wasn't so much faith as I'd argue it was superstition. Okay? And maybe we could define superstition like this. Superstition attempts to manipulate God's power through our actions. That is not faith. The Israelites acted as though the ark itself is what held the special power to defeat their enemies. And so as long as they had this ark with them, victory, they thought, was guaranteed. The ark, in other words, was basically like having God in a box. A God that they could carry around and wield his power whenever they needed a miracle. There was no gesture of even a prayer here. There was no effort of seeking God's will or his help. In other words, there was no hint of an actual relationship with God in any of this. All they thought was, we have the ark, we have the victory. And God is obligated to help us if his ark is here. And in a way, it really seems like God had been cornered by the Israelites, doesn't it? Because if for no other reason, wouldn't God do something that day on the battlefield to at least defend his own honor, right? Because his reputation is on the line now. You know, these Philistines are quaking in their boots. They're terrified going, a God has arrived at the Israelite camp. What's going to happen to us? And so when the enemies of your people are anticipating being crushed as a God. Aren't you kind of obligated to crush them, you know, and destroy them? But instead, he lets the Israelites lose the battle and even lose the ark. And I think this may speak to how strongly God feels about our attempts to manipulate him as if he were some kind of impersonal force available at our disposal to do our bidding. Eugene Peterson says this, God was not at their disposal. God was not a thing. The living God cannot be used, manipulated, or managed. Spiritual power is not a matter of getting our hands on the right method or technology. The personal God cannot be reduced to an impersonal power. And you know what? I think the truth is that often superstition looks a lot like faith, and it's confusing at times. Outwardly, superstition can look just like faith. In fact, I would argue you often cannot tell the difference unless you actually look at the hidden motives of the heart, 
that is driving those actions that a person is doing. I realize that there is this subtle temptation to, even in my own life, move toward more of this kind of superstitious thinking than actual real faith in a living God who is alive and present in our lives. You know, I, I, I have to acknowledge that when I'm really in need of something from God, man, I become suddenly more devoted, you know? And I wonder why that is. Why just my prayers are just that much more earnest. My Bible reading seems to go up a notch, you know? I think about sometimes my preaching. When I preach in other places outside ICC, and I bring these messages that I think are sure bets, you know, because they worked elsewhere. And I think, wow, God really used that message to bless the people over there. And then I preach it somewhere else and it falls flat. And I think, what happened, you know? What went wrong? It's as if, like, this message has the power, you know? And I could use it anywhere, and it's going to do amazing things wherever I go. I think about even sort of the way I think about my children. And you know what I realized? Even there, there's this sort of superstitious creep that enters into my heart where I, I realize that I'm trying to basically, in some level, replicate my youth experience with my kids. And so in my head, I'm thinking, if they go to the same kind of retreats where I got so blessed and God changed my life, then I'm sure they'll experience the same thing and God will do the same thing. And I realize it hasn't quite worked out that way. They come home from the retreat and go, how was it? What happened, you know? And I was good, you know? I go, oh, no, you know? Well, maybe next year God will get you, you know? And, and you know, it's, it's this kind of thing that the, the retreats or these events or this sermon, or this is where the magic lies. This is where the power is. And I think the Israelites thought like that as well. And I want to ask you that. What are the ways that superstitious thinking has crept into your own faith? I think it's interesting. Jesus warns his own disciples about the way that this kind of superstitious attitude even can creep into our prayer life. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 to 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. He's saying don't pray like the pagans do who just think that it's some kind of a magical incantation. The more words, the more power. The more time spent on your knees, the more God will do on your behalf. God says it doesn't work that way. Prayer is not manipulation, trying to get me to bend to your will by demonstrating how devoted you are to me. Prayer is about relationship. It is about fundamental trust in the God that you worship. Come to me in prayer knowing that you pray to a heavenly father who knows everything you need before you ask. There is always, I think, a component of surrender in true faith. Faith is always rooted in relationship with God and flows from what we already believe God has done for us out of his love for us.
It is not about control, about manipulation, about trying to bend God to our will. But it is about relationship with the one who holds all authority over our lives. It seems that the Israelites learned their lesson when they lost the ark. Because in the next chapter, they come to the prophet Samuel to do what they should have done all along. In 1 Samuel 7, verse 5 to 11, it says, Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as beth Car. Wow, what a difference, huh? This is what should have happened at the very beginning of a humble and desperate seeking of God and his help. Not a presumptuous claiming of that power by bringing the ark and forcing God's hand in the battle. There was true repentance here. There was true relationship here. A hungering saying, God, you are God and we need you in this moment of desperation. And in that prayer, God answered mightily and delivered his people. After capturing the ark, the Philistines are celebrating themselves. And they bring the ark to Ashdod, one of their cities. And they put it inside the temple of their god called Dagon. And the Philistines are trapped in that same kind of superstitious thinking that the Israelites were. One of the reasons why they brought the ark into their own temple was this idea that they had defeated the Israelites' God. And they thought that just like the Israelites did, God was physically in that box. And so by bringing it into their own God's temple, it was symbolic of saying, our God has subdued your God. And so now we can harness the power of this ark for ourselves. We've kidnapped the God of Israel. And now he's here in this box. Well, 1 Samuel 5, verse 3 to 5 says, says this, And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon on both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. In other words, God taught the Philistines the same lesson that he had to teach his own people. 
I am not a God who can be possessed or controlled or domesticated. And then what happens next is that the Philistines are inflicted with these tumorous lesions. And it seems like they came through this vector of these mice. And so, you know, a lot of people suspect that this was maybe bubonic plague or something like that. And the Philistines are terrified. And so they say, we don't want anything to do with this ark. And as the neighborly people they are, they give it to their fellow Philistines in the city of Gath and say, you can have it. And so the people of Gath are like, yay, we get the ark. (laughs) And then they all break out in tumors as well. And so they give it to their neighbors in Ekron. And this is what it says in verse 10 of chapter 5. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. This whole drama is stretched out over seven months. And finally, the Philistines have had enough and they say, this is not a God that we can control. And they say, we don't want this ark anywhere in Philistia. And so they've devised this interesting little test. They build an ox cart and they hitch up two milking cows to it. And then what they do is they take the calves, the the nursing calves of these milking cows, and they bring them back to their homes. And then without anyone guiding the cart, they say, let the cart go and let's see where these milking cows end up going because the natural thing for these cows to do would be to go back home to their calves. And so they say, if they do, then what we can say is this whole disease outbreak was just a coincidence. But they say, but if this cart heads back to Israel, we know that it was their God that did this to us. And sure enough, the cart, without anyone guiding it, heads back to the cities of Israel. And it ends up in this town called Beth Shemesh. And there at Beth Shemesh, the Israelites throw a great celebration because they've realized the ark has come back to them. And it would be great if that's where the story ended. But it doesn't end well even for the people at Beth Shemesh because this is what happens in chapter 6, verse 19 to 21. And And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. It's a little confusing to know exactly what happened. But what Old Testament scholars think is normally this ark was covered with like a seven-layer shroud. They weren't really supposed to be looking at it. And so two thoughts are here. Either they removed the shroud so that they could look at the ark. Basically, it was like a show, like entertainment. And these people at Beshemesh just wanted to kind of look at it out of curiosity or for whatever reason, there's even some suggestion that they may have taken the lid off so that they look at Aaron's budding staff and the manna. I mean, it must have been really fascinating, right? Look at what the Ten Commandments look like. And it seems like as a result of that type of behavior, 
God ended up punishing these people at Beth Shemesh. And so like the Philistines, they're like, we don't want this ark in our neighborhood, in our home, because we don't know what else could happen to us if it stays with us. And so again, being the neighborly people they are, they contacted the people of this place called Kiriath-Jerim, and they said, why don't you take the ark? And why don't you get it? In chapter 7, verse 1 to 2 of 1 Samuel, it says this, And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eliezer, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And so there it remained for 20 years because, frankly, nobody wanted it. Nobody knew what to do with this ark because it seems like everywhere the ark goes, trouble happens. People die. Until, that is, David decides, I want the ark in Jerusalem, which he had established as his capital after he became king. And so David says, let the ark come to Jerusalem because it is the center of our worship and it needs to be there. And so in 2 Samuel 6, starting in verse 3, we pick up the story. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourine and castanets and cymbals. And so this huge throng of 30,000 people gather at this tiny little village of Kiriath-Jerim to escort the ark nine miles to Jerusalem. And so the ox cart is plodding slowly and people are dancing and singing and it's an incredibly celebratory mood. It's basically a total party atmosphere until the party comes to this crashing halt when tragedy strikes. In verses 6 to 7 it says, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error and he died there beside the ark of God. So the, the oxen stumble, the cart gets unstable and Uzzah does what probably, truthfully, any one of us would have done by instinct in that moment, which is reaching out to brace the ark so that it doesn't come crashing down on the dirt. And by doing that which was forbidden, which was touching the ark, he paid for that error with his life. I find it interesting that there are some people who read the Bible very cynically as if it was one big marketing brochure by the Jews 
to try to convince people that their God is the true God, that their God is better than all the other gods of the other nations. I think people who try to argue that have never actually really read the Bible for themselves. Because if you're trying to sell God, this is not how you do it. This does not put God in a positive light. Who would want to follow a God like this? Passages like this seem to confirm our worst fears about God, don't they? J.D. Greer says this, Uzzah's death represents a thread of the biblical narrative that contemporary Westerners find particularly odious. Here we see a picture of an angry God, one who lashes out and kills for what seems to be a trifle. Uzzah wanted to keep God's ark from hitting the dirt. What is so sinful about that? And even if it were wrong, did God have to levy such a harsh punishment? And we're not exactly helped by the writer of 2 Samuel himself, who makes no attempt to make an apology for God. Nor does he even try to explain these events in a way that can help us and make sense of it. John Woodhouse, commenting on these verses, says this, It is difficult for many people to accept that God does not have to explain himself to us. He is not answerable to us. The reasons for his actions are often hidden from us. He is not obliged to win our approval. And I think David's reaction to these events captures what all of us would feel if we were there ourselves. Because in verses 8 to 9, this is what happens. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day, which means God broke out against Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, which is another way of saying the Philistine. David expresses two emotions here, and they're both important for us to understand. They are anger and it is fear. He is angry at God because he feels that the punishment doesn't fit the crime. God, he was only trying to help your ark from falling and hitting the dirt, and you killed him for it. What's your deal, God? What's your problem? But with that anger was also fear. The same fear that the Philistines felt when they had those tumors. The same fear that the people of Beth Shemesh had when they decided to use the ark as entertainment. And I want to say this. I think there is something inside all of us that wants a God that we can fully understand and even predict. A God who, in other words, always meets our expectations. We want a God that makes total sense to us, whose actions and choices always seem reasonable to our sensibilities. Basically, I, what I'm saying is we want a tame, domesticated God. We want a God that we can keep inside a box of our own making 
who is made in our own image. But that's not the God that we encounter in the pages of the Bible. And it is not the God that we encounter on this road to Jerusalem. And so David is afraid. David is afraid. In fact, he is second-guessing whether he himself wants the ark to come to Jerusalem after all. Because as he says, if it comes to Jerusalem, God only knows what's going to happen there. This ark is dangerous because this God is dangerous. And I don't know what to do anymore. Now, this is usually the part of the sermon where I reach into my bag of tricks (laughs) and pull out some obscure verse somewhere else in the Bible that explains everything and resolves all the tension and makes us say, oh, I get it now. Totally makes sense. I'm sorry to disappoint you today, but I can't do that. I want to say this. I think most of us could wrap our minds around a loving God because I think we all have experienced love even in our human relationships. We have some sense of what love is. I think our real struggle is with the holy God because holiness is something that is unique to God and totally foreign to us. And when his holiness is on display in the Bible, it bothers us. It doesn't make sense to us. And I believe, I sincerely believe that God does invite us to understand his holiness more and more deeply. But I would also argue that ultimately the goal is not understanding as much as it is actually what I think the Bible teaches is a healthy fear of the Lord. Because, as the Bible says repeatedly, the healthy fear of the Lord is the only proper foundation for a life of faith. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Psalm 2, verse 11 says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. What in the world does that mean? How do you rejoice with trembling? And I think this. I think even as you're listening to this message this morning, there can be a very strong temptation to say, yeah, you know what though, Pastor Steve? That's the Old Testament. That's the law. Fearing God isn't for Christians because Jesus died for our sins. And now we live under grace where we don't have to fear God anymore. But I'm going to argue that that's not actually what the Bible itself teaches. That even those of us who are under grace as disciples of Jesus, there is still a proper place for the fear of the Lord in Christian living. Acts chapter 9, verse 31, I think demonstrates this with absolute clarity. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. 
again, sounds like a contradiction. The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm very burdened by the things I'm saying this morning because, like I said, I realize that this can affirm some of our darkest fears about God. And I think it's because some of us have been raised in ways that have taught us a very dysfunctional sense of fear, maybe under the hand of abusive parents or other forms of authority. And I I don't think that that is the kind of fear that we're talking about here because the fear and the goodness of God, the holiness and the mercy of God have to always go hand in hand. It is not this kind of cowering fear of an abusive parent. But nevertheless, it is the acknowledgement that the God that we worship is holy and he does hold total authority over our lives. I've shared this before, but one of the, I think, best ways that I've seen it illustrated is in C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a children's fantasy that shares a lot of spiritual truths. And in that book, it takes place in this land, this fictional land of Narnia, where these children are going to meet the king of the land, which is a lion named Aslan. And he represents Jesus in this story. And these children are talking with this beaver couple because the animals talk there in Narnia. And there's this interesting exchange as they're getting ready to meet Aslan for the first time. But shall we see him? asks Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? course he isn't safe but he's good he's the king i tell you i think lewis captures it well right because a good lion is still a lion (laughs) and so he's saying you can trust this lion he is good he is loving he is merciful but he's not safe he's not domesticated He is not under your control. I think Uzzah's death should not have been a total mystery to David or the Israelites for that matter. Three months would go by while David tries to figure out what to do with this ark. And during those three months, he has an opportunity to do a lot of soul searching. 
And he finally comes to that place of realizing that he has taken God's commands too casually. Joyce Baldwin comments on this and says, speaking of in reference to David, he who had experienced wonderful protection over the years from the Lord his God and had known unusual intimacy with him had to come to terms with the fact that he had overstepped the mark and presumed upon the relationship by failing to observe the regulations laid down to safeguard respect for God's holiness. In other words, what David realized was that ark should have never been on an ox cart because God had given explicit instructions as to how to transport his ark. And the only way that that was permissible was for the Levites to carry it on these posts that were a part of its very construction. And David acknowledges that this was the error when he tries for a second time to bring the ark to Jerusalem. In the parallel account in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 12 to 13, it says this. And he said to them, you, speaking to the Levites, you are the heads of the father's house, houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. And so in chapter 6, verse 12 to 15 of 2 Samuel, it says this, And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. He, so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn or the shofar. So once again, as the ark is coming into Jerusalem, there is this tremendous celebration and dancing that is taking place. But along with that celebration this time is interestingly a humility that I think was not there the first time. It's interesting that this time David is not wearing his royal robes. But this time he is wearing specifically what is, we're told, is a linen ephod. It's basically like underwear. It's a very simple white robe that was actually the clothing of the priests. The priests would wear that. And now David is wearing the uniform of the priests. And as he sings before God and dances, it is David, the king, modeling for his people what true worship looks like before this God who cannot be kept in a box or contained and who is to be feared as the God of over, over every single person in that place. In other words, I think what David is saying is the only proper response to what we have experienced in these days because of this ark is worship. Worship that says, God, I cannot even fully comprehend you. I don't understand your ways. And this thing about your holiness, I don't really fully get. 
But what you have asked of us is wholehearted worship that acknowledges who you are. I think it's this very important contrast that is being made between David's example and what his wife Michael ends up doing when she sees David, which really drives the lesson home. In verse 16, it says this, As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And it goes on in verse 20 to 23. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honors himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly, shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as a prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child Till the day of her death. David's wife, Michael, sees the spectacle of David dancing almost uncontrollably out of his joy being in God's presence. And she despises him for it. Alexander White interestingly noted, commenting on Michael's reaction, those who are deaf always despise those who dance. In other words, Michael couldn't understand what David was so over-the-top excited about. She wanted a husband who acted more like a king, you know, with decorum. More like her father, Saul, who shows power and strength. Not jumping around like a child in underwear, especially in a co-ed crowd where women are watching, acting like a fool. And David says, if it's before the Lord, I will be even a greater fool than this to show that he alone is worthy of my total surrendered worship to him and him alone. And I think that's ultimately the lesson that God is driving at here. Don't try to fully explain me. Don't try to contain me. Don't try to manipulate me. I am the God of gods. I am the king of kings. And in my holiness, there are going to be in your limited knowledge aspects of my character that you cannot this side of heaven fully understand. But even in that struggle to wrestle with my ways, worship me and surrender yourself to my authority. Let's pray. We're going to come to this Lord's table in just a minute and take from these elements of the bread and the cup. But before we do that, let me just offer you a moment of contemplation and prayer because I, I understand that these words are not easy words. 
And this whole idea that we worship a God who is holy, and oftentimes the way that he will act out of that holiness is I will be the first one to acknowledge is, is not just confusing, but frankly at times disturbing to my sensibilities. And yet what I realize is the deeper struggle underneath all of that is that I do want a God that I can fully explain and fully understand and truthfully fully contain. And that is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God of heaven and earth who rules over us. And so I think there is a place of appropriate smallness, of humility before this God that can say before this God, Lord, though I don't even fully understand you, I submit myself in worship to your authority, your lordship, your kingship over my life. And I think that's what David did before God when he was dancing and singing and celebrating that day. This mysterious God, this God that's frankly sometimes I'm afraid of, that I don't, I don't understand yet is a God that I can draw near, a God of blessing, a God of love, a God of mercy a God that I can earnestly celebrate without reservation. And this God who is a mystery to me is a God who loves me and wants a relationship with me and cares for me. And so let me invite you right now to uh, join with the worship team in a song of response before we come to this table and take part in this communion.